Hello and welcome to Meet the Founder, a new series within But Why podcast. My name is Clemmie Telford and before I began out on social media, my career was in advertising as an agency creative director and later as a creative strategist at Facebook and Instagram. I have a fascination with brands, how and why they exist and the stories of the people behind them. Meet the Founder is my opportunity to marry my love of honest conversations about tricky subjects with my curiosity about brands. It's business chat, but a bit nosier. I had a phenomenal start to my career. So then by the time I was 30, I set myself a goal to have had three editorships, which was all about, I mean, it's just, it's a bit of a nightmare in its own right, isn't it? Where's the loyalty here, Lisa? <laughs> like, She's stick off. with us, yeah. Today, I'm talking to Lisa Smorsarski. Can you give it to me? Smorsarski. 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 Someone with a lisp and dyslexic is like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, I'm just here to challenge you. Yeah. Uh, who is editor-in-chief of Stylist Magazine. So she's not so much a founder, but you were founding editor, which I find just as fascinating. That is correct. I was. So give me the elevator pitch for the mag, why it exists, what it exists for. So when we launched Stylist, we wanted to do magazines differently for women and, and really in the in the simplest elevator form, it was treating women intelligently through their magazine. Um, we launched as a feminist title that was particularly new, I think, actually, when we launched 13 years ago. Um, and we just wanted to be an advocate, a cheerleader for women and to change the conversation about how media treated women as well. I'm trying to do the maths in my head and also mm. try and work out what time we were talking about. What was the tone at that, at that point? So 2009 was when we launched. It was a big tail end of celeb culture. So lots of weeklies, lots of circles of shame, lots of kind of women feeling bad about themselves or sort of enjoying the titillation. It was quite a complex relationship with magazines, I think. I had come from More magazine when I uh, launched Stylist and, you know, we were sort of dabbling in that space, but all the research was suggesting that women wanted something different. And, you know, I could testify to that. I was looking for that as well, which I think is often the case when you're launching new businesses, you're trying to fill a need that you have, particularly as women. Um, so yeah, so so we were very different. The tone was very different. It was slightly before Instagram launched, slightly before Catelyn Moran's books came out and sort of changed some of the conversation around feminism. So we, really we were sort of on the cusp and, I mean, I remember going out to ad agencies, you'll remember this from your background and going, we're going to be this feminist title. And people were like, I'm going to stop you there. <laughs> you know, like, because it was just seen as this kind of, well, terrifying idea. Why would you be a feminist magazine? And I was like, well, we're a magazine for women who want equality. Why wouldn't we be that? Mm. So I think, you know, we were trying to set a, a bit of a different tone with stylists. Yeah, it's so strange because now it feels, it's really obvious. It, of course, that's how we should talk. Of course, you can be a feminist and be into fashion and be into style yeah. and be into all of But yeah, again, picturing that time, it was off the back of that celebrity bit. It was, it was a strange era because I felt like I was quite empowered at the time. Mm. But then you look back at some of the behavior, quite a lot of sexism, quite a lot of um, trying to keep up with the lads. And that was my experience of agency culture at the time. Yeah, I think that that's really familiar to me as well. And I think probably, look, it was called ladette culture, wasn't it? So mm. it was trying to be one of the boys and that did give an, an, a sense of agency and empowerment. You weren't bound by traditional kind of stereotypes, what it meant to be a woman or the type of content you'd enjoy as a woman. But it did have its downsides because again, it wasn't recognizing 
perhaps you might have differences in how you want to approach the world. I mean, it's remarkable, actually, if you think 13 years on, we work in a culture which talks about kindness and kind of traditional feminine stereotypes in business. But we were rejecting those back those, you know, we were trying to play with the boys. Mm. And I think that has been one of the most phenomenal shifts, I think, in how people talk about business, particularly. It's so true. You definitely, I bought into the idea that you had to be a bit of a bull breaker to, mm. to you know, it was, it wasn't it was so far away from the 80s. But yeah, you definitely had to keep up with the banter if you wanted to succeed. Yeah. And I think we, you know, those of us of that generation have that slightly hardened exterior a lot of the time, because that was basically you were going to have to suck it up a bit to in order to have your place at the table. So you weren't going to be 50-50 men and women. That wasn't going to happen. You were going to have to break through. You're going to have to be a pioneer. And actually, you would probably have to just slot into how business was being done. And I think it's actually through the agency of women bringing in new ways of thinking. And, I, you know, I say men can be empathetic and kind. Mm. Of course they can. Women can be, can't think of a better word than ballsy. It's a terrible word. But, you know, mm. can actually um, be super tough. Men and women can do all of these things. But actually, it's the combination of all those gears that sees productivity results. Yeah, so true. And it, and it's mad to be at the, we're at similar points in our career where you can begin to reflect. And before we turned on the record, we were talking about that era and our first days in, in working. And we're recording this in central London. And it always instills that vibe in me when, when anything felt possible. Do you remember that time? Yeah. Oh, my God. We were, we, I mean, look, we started our careers. I started my career in 1998 and uh, I just graduated. I got this amazing job as junior writer on Bliss magazine. I thought the world was mine. It really felt like it was mine for the taking. You know, I was working in a very high flying industry. There was lots of money around, lots of that being spent on entertaining people, hospitality, very different era to what we sit in now for a lot of people. Um, and I was just going for it. I was like, I, the, this will be mine. I will take all the opportunities that come away. It felt good. It felt buoyant. But it's interesting because now I look back and I'm like, what is it that I thought I was taking? Like, what, <laughs> do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, what yeah. is it that I wanted? And yeah, I mean, look, you're, you're editor in chief. This would have been this would have been the thing that yeah. you, you got there. Is it strange to sit with that idea that you got to the thing that you wanted? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting idea. I think all of my goals and ambitions were based on something that I achieved by the age of 30. <laughs> and then was like, all right, what's next? And I think we spend so much time thinking about that first chapter of our careers when mm. actually we want to think about the second, third, fourth, you know, so many people pivoting, so many people reinventing. The world of work has changed so much. So I do... Often I think about the goals that I set myself and it was about, you know, I, I was editor of Smash Hits at 25. So I had a phenomenal start to my career. So then by the time I was 30, I set myself a goal to have had three editorships, which was all about, I mean, it's just, it's a bit of a nightmare in its own right, isn't it? Where's the loyalty here, Lisa? <laughs> like, She's stick off. with us, yeah. And then I went to stylist and thought, this is my place. You know, this is, I've created this amazing thing. I want to stick with it. Um, and that brings a whole kind of, I have learned a lot through that process and expanding a business, growing a business, not, you know, the ups and downs that business can bring as well. So I do reflect, isn't it mad that I set out to do something and I, I do it, but, but then I think, right, right, what's next? You know, I'm sort of a 
guess it's human nature. We're kind of goal-driven mm. people, aren't we? Humans are goal-driven. Um, so I, I find that interesting. And I think reflecting as well, I am learning from younger generations definitely now about how you don't have to fulfill everything through work and work alone, which I think is something our generation do struggle with. Um, we put everything into work and I actually don't think that's necessarily the case for those that are, co- are coming behind us. So we're probably the mad ones who worked around the clock, did all these things that we were told we needed to do to succeed. We saw results. It, it's kind of validation. Mm. So we kept doing it. But actually, there is a different way to be and to work. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? And it, like, it's very strange when you do achieve your goals. And for me, as a pe- perpetual person who's obsessed with goals, more often than not, I'm quite disappointed when I get there, which is not, not mm. surprising because you just get there and I always laugh you know all my big promotions have happened in amongst other big moments in your life you know sometimes quite rubbish moments sometimes when you're not feeling your best and it's never that oh champagne and fireworks and now I feel fantastic it's always like oh yeah but I've got suddenly got a whole lot more responsibility or Mm. there's other things going on yeah isn't it funny isn't it it doesn't quite feel like you think it's gonna feel sometimes (laughs) never But yeah, I guess that's it. We're sort of in a, I think we're in a new world of work where actually we're redefining what satisfaction, success looks and feels Mm. like. And is that about fulfillment? Is that about purpose? Will you achieve that all through work? Full stop. Probably not. We learn that, I think, Mm. as we get older. Um, So I think, yeah, I think, I think there's probably, we're about to go through this seismic shift on how we think about goals and what we achieve. And I definitely think, you know, for me and and women, I'll say specifically of my generation, I do think there is a shift in like, actually, Mm. we've got to reset how we think about work particularly, but what it means to our identity and happiness. That's really fascinating, isn't it? Like if you have a career and it's one you're proud of and it feels like quite a big career, but then who you are outside of that. And for me, the big thing came when I had kids and you're suddenly introduced as their parent. Mm. And you're like, oh, but what, you know, two weeks ago I was in the office and I was doing this. Yeah. And then suddenly, like, this is a reality check. I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. So-and-so's mum. Oh, what? It so starts in the starts in the hospital appointments, doesn't it? You're like, I'm a human with achievements and like an identity of my own. Um, but yeah, that's it. We are lots of different things. And actually just hanging all of our hopes and dreams on one element is quite dangerous, I yeah. suspect. You know, it's very... We're asking a hell of a lot of something that's set up to make the world work and a financial capitalist structure mm. in terms of trying to get our identity and happiness from it as well. I'm proud to be career driven and it's brought me so much joy and satisfaction, but it can be an uncomfortable question to ask yourself at this point, mm. who am I outside of that? Yeah. I don't. And it's a game I like to play and I'm quite scared of the answers, I'll be honest. <laughs> I haven't nailed it. I definitely haven't nailed it. Um, one thing I was interested in, though, you talked about this idea of longevity. And actually, during the conversations I've been having for this podcast, I think sometimes in, in the way we think about business now and, and because of Instagram and things blowing up, we don't hear about the long game. Mm. But yeah, you've been you've been at Stylist for a long time. Did you expect it, it to be a, a long-term plan and, and how has it ended up being that way? I absolutely didn't expect to be at Stylist for 13 years. I, I think probably because I hadn't done that before. So although I'd worked for one company before with a slight um, 
blip in the middle I it wasn't a blip it wasn't a bad blip that sounds like I was fired I wasn't um, I left for a bit and came back I'd moved around a lot of different brands and I'd you know for me I was just gaining experience in the world working with different people um I couldn't imagine at that point when I walked into stylist that I would be there 13 years later because that hadn't been my experience um I think two things happened one I sort of fell in love with it and just thought I've created this phenomenal thing it's uh, I'm very emotionally connected which is quite unusual I think for lots of people in work and secondly I was afforded a lot of brilliant opportunities there so I came in as founding editor you know created and launched this product with my brilliant team it was just a magazine then we expanded into digital then we expanded into events you know social video email so every year I sort of felt like I was learning something and and taking that into my skill set. And then I joined the board of directors. So I had the um, kind of business side of it as well. So it, it has felt like this kind of constantly fluid experience. I don't feel like it's been static. And I think I've learned so much. I know I've changed a lot mm. in terms of how I might tackle things as a manager or a leader. And, you know, I really feel more comfortable and confident now because of that experience that I've been afforded. So you know, it, it's been the most amazing learning experience mm. uh, as well, which I think you, God, I mean, I think that is the thing I'm probably most grateful for is being able to learn and work in an area that I'm really passionate about and emotionally connected to. It's a phenomenal brand. We've created this amazing thing. Um, so I feel like I'm probably spoiled by that as well. Well, that's a lovely place to be because it's so easy to fall out of love yeah. with your work, isn't it? Yeah. And that's it. You know, it's not always easy, is it? You know, work is set to challenges as a manager and leader. You know, you might have day-to-day -day challenges. As a business leader, obviously, you're looking at macro and microeconomics. That can be challenging at times. You know, like everyone, I'll have days where I'm like, good God, this is hard. This is a hard day or a hard week. But ultimately, when you believe in the mission of what you're doing, which mm -hmm. I do, um, I feel, and having had that journey of launching something and seeing where we've been able to take it, I think is a pretty special opportunity actually. Um, and yes, yeah, so I feel very privileged and very lucky to have been on that journey. And has your audience grown up with you or have you got a new audience along the way? Has, has the demographic shifted? We have managed to recruit and that's particularly come in like new readers over those 13 years. That's because we're using different platforms. We have slightly different age groups on different platforms. So obviously how you discover stylists will be different for different people. Mm. Um, the founding readers, I guess those of 13 years ago who, who were very much based on the print product, still come to our events. I met someone last week, we were doing this event called Stylist Network, which is um, a business and it was particularly focused on entrepreneurs event. And someone came up to me and she went, I came to your first ever event, and which must be close to 12, 13 years ago. And she's like, I've loved Stylist ever since, really loyal. And then I'll meet younger women who've just discovered Stylist for the first time. So we're managing to have, we still speak to the same woman. We mm. always said we didn't want to define her by and life stage necessarily. We wanted someone to be shared by this kind of ethos way of looking at the world. I love that. It's as we're talking, it's, it is exactly that, the picking it up in the beginning of our careers. And, yeah. and uh, But I guess because you were very much values led rather than life stage, that means it does translate and, it, it, you know, 
it will translate in different ways depending on your on your life stage. But I'm thinking I was part of that campaign you did where you showed a load of us with it, naked with our backs and that. Mm. But like body image, confronting body image challenges is is universal, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, exactly. And actually, if you if that was last summer, and um, if you look at that cover and the with the women that got involved, and it's probably just to explain, we asked our audience, um, "Do you want to come along to a shoot?" Obviously, we asked some of our friends of our brands to come and get involved, and we had just the most phenomenal spectrum of women there, which is the thing that makes me the happiest, to mm. be honest. That we are able to have a conversation with so many different women, but we are united in the same ways. And we learn from each other's experience, we can share that. And I think, you know, that particular cover was looking at the challenges we have around diet culture and body image. And it's a topic we've been really cautious about touching actually, mm. because we were very anti-diet when we launched, because we'd launched into this um, newsstand, I guess, mm. where, it was all about, um, it was so obsessed with body image. Diets were on every single cover as a cover line. I hated it. I hated what that was doing to women. I hated the fact it was a lie, selling these ridiculous dreams about lose X amount of pounds in four weeks and non-sustainable ways to think healthily about your body, but really the damage to body image. So I rejected it totally. I was like, we won't do this to you. We won't force feed. We'll not talk about homogenized ideals. But still 13 years later, women are still having the same issues and challenges. So we don't want to ignore that either. So trying to have these conversations, but seeing how cross-generational, um, cross every single kind of divide that you could put amongst women, this, the issues were the same. Mm. Um, so I think that's what Stylist has been able to do is to bring women together. We, we find out our big events. So we do this uh, brilliant event every November called Stylist Live. And it is the loveliest group of women you could ask for who come together. Lots come on their own. We have a catwalk. And often you'll find women who've just met, sat on the benches of this catwalk, just coming together and like they're not people you would piece together in in normal life but really getting something about that shared space so that's something I probably feel the proudest about is that ability to have these connecting conversations mm. yeah and it must be for you as well uh, you know I don't know if a lot of it is your own journey with any of these things you know when you talk about body image it's if you've been brought up as we've said in that culture of circle of shame and how mm. much people weigh it's like because a couple of your staff were also photographed in that shoot yeah and I remember waiting to go on with them and you know they're feeling exactly the same as everyone else and yeah. that's what's an amazing thing where it kind of works through the staff into your audience yeah I mean that that particular idea was um one a colleague of mine who is particularly affected by the um I guess feelings around body image and diet culture and what that had uh, done to her. And that sparked a conversation where the team all started to relate and share stories. I feel like my experience was a bit different, but outside looking in going, God, I've been part of the machine in the past that sort of did these things and how uncomfortable, how could I change that conversation? Because, you know, anyone who worked on women's magazines back in the 90s and noughties were, really was probably part of that culture. There was very, there were no titles not mm. doing that. Um, for me, that was a period of reflection to go, I, I don't like this, I'm not comfortable with this. Mm. It doesn't speak to me on any level, let alone think about what the damaging mm. implications of that can be. We touched on something then. I'm interested to know, 
as you go up the ranks, you obviously go into management role and then you're managing a team. How's the, how, what's your management style like? What have you learned about yourself in that? I feel like I've changed. That's the bit I feel like I've changed and learned the most in. I mean, I mentioned earlier, I was editor of Smash Hits at 25 and with that comes a team and I did not know what I was doing. <laughs> like, I mean, I realise how little now, if I can look back on it. I did my best. I tried to manage instinctively based on how I liked to be managed, but there's not much uh, uh, sophistication perhaps in doing it like that. So I think particularly over the last, I don't know, decade really, I feel like I've, I've learned a lot in this space. And I, I've always, you know, genuinely have kindness as an ethos, even in the most challenging periods, even if you've got to have the toughest chat ever, you can be kind about it. And I think that's always been really important to me. I hope it has, and I hope no one will listen to this <laughs> and say to the contrary, because I kind of think they're the times when actually how we lead really counts. They're in the tough times. It's easy to be chipper and motivational when everything is going great, but how do you deal with the difficult bits? Um, I've learned so much more about how to listen actually, to take on board other people's experiences, to try and see things from other people's perspective, to canvas opinion, but also to be decisive and to move on. You know, you can canvas opinion to death, you know, mm. but there's a fine line, but, you know, involving people in the right ways. Um, so I, I, I think for me, I would hope I uh, am collaborative, I am kind, but to be a leader, you have to lead as well. And that is about decision-making. It's about having a vision and taking people on that journey with you and, you know, making sure. Well, one thing I love about Silas is we have this phenomenal shared vision. And I think, you know, there's not a member of that team who doesn't know what mm. it is and what we stand for. And that's about the clarity of the DNA of the business, about what we want to achieve beyond publishing. You mm. know, what do we want to stand for and represent? And I think for me that they're the biggest learnings is how you get people to that point uh, and, you know, be a decent human in the process. Yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because that canvassing idea is really interesting because you do need to read the room and read yeah. the energy, but you also, you've got the, the bucks that stop with you for part yeah. of it and you... I mean, look, you know, part of being an editor particularly is making unpopular decisions. Somebody will always be annoyed with you because mm. if you've got five people pitching you ideas, you're going to have to pick one. You're going to have to stand by it. And you're going to have to move on. And I've often said to uh, my more junior editors, you know, just make a decision. Mm -hmm. People are looking at you for a decision. They need leadership and they they want to know the direction of travel and, and want to believe in what you want mm -hmm. to achieve. But do that with the knowledge that you need to make that decision. Get enough information, not too many. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of, but there is a point where you do have to call it. And so for me, learning very early on, actually, how to make what might be an unpopular decision because you know people have different ideas and different ways of thinking in a fair way and be, being comfortable with that, not going mm. to bed at night going, oh God, did I handle that properly? That, they are big things that you can only really get through experience, I think, of having the opportunity to make those calls. So I always tell people if I'm mentoring them, like challenge yourself, what would be your decision in that situation? How would you stand mm. by it? even if you're not the person making that decision, how would you do it? Mm. Because it, it's a skill and a, a discipline actually to be able to do it and stand by it. Yeah, that's that's. there's actually nothing more damaging in business as someone picking, or anything to be honest, I'm saying this because I'm doing this house renovation and you know decisions that I'm now on yeah. picking 
um, you know, actually you've got to have the confidence of your convictions sometimes, haven't you? And so you do, and sometimes you have to be wrong. Yeah. And that has to be all right as well. You know, you have to, hopefully you work in enough of a safe space where you can make a call and you will accept that, you know, hopefully it's not so catastrophic, but sometimes you might go, I would do that differently mm. next time. What can I learn from that? How can I move that on? Because I think that's it, you know, in, in a high paced decision making environment like editing is, and you know, we've got daily products, weekly, monthly, you are making decisions all the time. And I think some of them, not all of those are gonna be brilliant, right? Sometimes you will, will have messed up or you might have made slightly the wrong call and actually how you deal with that and how you move on are, are really important. I think this is my point about listening is I think you can learn all the time. You can, you can sort of go, right, how would I handle that differently? What's the different perspective that I'm being positioned with? How do I take that on board? And be prepared to say, you're right, I'm wrong. Mm. That is quite a skill as well. You talked about mentoring then. Have you had a mentor yourself during this process? I've never had a formal mentor relationship, but I have had lots of people who I would go to in certain situations. So I feel really lucky. Um, and they've been different people at different points in my career who, who've just either given me great advice in certain challenging situations. Definitely not done it alone. I've definitely done it with a lot of support and brilliant advice and counsel. I think it's important, you know, I, I think if you can have a traditional kind of set up established mentor relationship, mm -hmm. I would recommend that. I think one of my big things is no one knows it all on their own. Really don't. Like, I think that for ideas creatively with stylists, I'm like, our idea will be better with more than one brain on this. So how can you grow on each other's idea? And I, it's, it is how I prefer to work. Um, so I think again, the mentor relationships can be really valuable because you won't know everything and that's yeah. all right. How does classically coming up in, in journalism, do you tend to have an editor and a junior relationship? Do you have that kind of, do you work into people that end up shaping yeah. how you do your job? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, particularly for me, I came into journalism and I, you know, I didn't know anyone who was a journalist. I just sort of plucked it out the air as something would be really exciting to do. And wouldn't that be amazing? And were then really amazed that people had these networks already <laughs> existing. And I was like, oh God, like I don't know what or how this all works. And I was just so keen to succeed. And I think if you're lucky enough to get a good editor and that could be as a journalist, that might be your department editor, a features editor, a commissioning editor, or it might be your editor in chief. So there's tiers of people who that might be. But actually someone is giving you advice and structure how to write in a different way or how to manage an interview or you it's a huge growth period, I think, particularly when you come into the industry. So you are made and sculpted by the good and the bad mm -hmm. around you. You learn what you don't want to be as well. Yeah, that's really true. And all those cliches about being nice to people on the way up. Oh God, that is really true, yeah. Oh. There's some people now I'm like, they're what, they do what? You know, it's like, it's incredible. But you know, you particularly, <laughs> you'll relate with the same generation, but people who were your junior who are now running these like incredible businesses. Oh, yeah. um, it's it's phenomenal, but I, th I I think that's just about being a decent human, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think, again, these, are, these aren't business things, are these? No, these, these life. Are life <laughs> Tell me about a mistake then along the way, or if there's anything in particular or yeah, moments you would do differently. The one that springs to mind is, and there are plenty, <laughs> don't get me wrong, there are plenty. 
I got the editorship of Bliss, um, which was a teen magazine. I'd worked there as a junior writer and a features editor. So I had this sort of long-standing relationship. And I got this gig as editor and I just felt like I had to make my mark really quickly. And I think, I think it's a huge pressure that lots of editors particularly put themselves under, which is what's my vision? How am I going to prove that to everyone? And my first issue, I just ripped out this entire section because I didn't like it personally. And really proud of myself. Yeah, guys, we're not doing that anymore. And I didn't tell anyone <laughs> about this. So an editor reports into a publisher traditionally who very tactfully came in the day the magazine came into the offices going, seems to be an entire section missing from this, Lisa. And I was like, yeah, I didn't like it. So I thought it'd be better explain my rationale. And she was like, actually, did you look at the reader research? And I was like, hmm, no, I didn't. And... Again, it had tested really well historically. Now, it didn't have an impact in terms of sales or the longevity, but it was a really big learning curve for me because she she did handle it well because she challenged me to think about it as opposed to telling me off, mm. which is basically what she was there to do. But I think what I did, and I, I definitely did it a couple of times, was desperately try to prove myself by making huge changes. And actually, that's not necessarily what was being asked. Mm. It was calm, thoughtful, considered leadership. And so often I think people, in any business, people go, I must rip things up and do it differently because it's not my way. And that's not always the best way. So I think I think for me, I've definitely done it a couple of times and I've definitely advised people not to do it a lot more times than that afterwards. And then actually it's interesting because in that era, you didn't have such real time audience feedback. Mm. Because imagine now if you put a mag out with a whole section gone and it went live, oh I mean, how quickly God. the acid test. Yeah, I mean, I do, I feel grateful I didn't go up making those mistakes in a world of social media, actually. Yeah. It makes it much harder. And then I think, you know, I, I have um, a lot of respect for social media. I, I think it does incredible things in uniting people, in advocating, giving agency. And I think it's phenomenally dangerous in mm. other ways. And I think in my industry, one of the challenges is that fear of cancel culture is stop people taking risks or being brave. And I think, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily have done that for the right reason, but it would have given you the fear of making any change mm. or kind of disrupting anything because we listen to the loudest voices, not necessarily mm. the most important voices. In fact, it's deeply worrying if journalism edits, edits itself Totally. Yeah, exactly. What you can't have, afford to do that. You know, you know. Yeah, you're seeing comedians saying that they feel cancelled. It's like we need some people to push. Look, being, Gary Lineker is yeah. the perfect example as as we sit here this week. You know, it's like, you know, the, the fear of being silenced all the time. Mm. And, you know, that's the BBC acting in a scared way as much as, yeah. you know, Gary Lineker fighting back. It's like, you know, these are really important things to pay attention to about what the impact of mm -hmm. social media is on how we behave and what we ask of people and what we're brave enough to put out on our platforms. Mm -hmm. So I think I think it's a challenging period of time. And I, you know, I think, oh God, I'm sure if I look back from my career and think where we were brave, would that have changed in the world of social media? Probably. Yeah, yeah, because it's because of the the speed, the thing that I just referenced. Because yeah. people don't have don't process things, do they? They just they just react. What does give me hope is that publishing 
has done really well. You know, mm. books are doing really well, yeah. but there is still a place for long form. Do you still find engagement on your longer format? Oh yeah, I mean, look, the the you know, it's sort of. The consider we think of ourselves as thoughtful journalists. Mm. So we're trying to have thoughtful takes on the topics that are most meaningful to you. And we, we talk a lot about the emotional zeitgeist. So we're trying to tap into how people are thinking and feeling and behaving. But actually you do need to do that in a considered way. You can't have, you know, 300 words sort of summing it all up and it can't just be bashed out quickly. You know, we have to take our time and really dive into all the different angles to balance it where we can. And that is our most popular content still, mm. is that real analysis analysis of thought, really. Um, which I'm delighted about because that is our that's really at the heart of mm. what we're trying to achieve is yes, we're obviously going to have lots of different content in lots of different ways, but really getting into this nitty-gritty, analyzing thoughtfulness. I think it's still really critical. And people vote with their clicks, right? Mm. So it's really nice to see that that content still really yeah. resonates. I've just thought of yesterday, I was introduced to this AI copywriting. Have you been <laughs> yeah. exposed to some of this? Yeah. And I was like, this is going to be terrible. And then the person put in like a broad, a broad thing. She actually put in like motherhood and sex as, as the topic and the word count. And I was like, this is going to... And it's it, not bad, is it's it? Not <laughs> yeah. bad. Like there's a sense of humor. You know, they, she went for a funny one. There's yeah. a sense of humor. There's structure. I was like, nah, nah. Oh, oh okay. God. <laughs> but actually, an, an important thing: it, it can't replicate humanness. That is, that has to come through a human brain. I hope. I think so. No, I think you're absolutely right on that. Yeah, th those bigger nuances. The human experience is complex, as we mm. know, and. We're not, hopefully, we're not quite there yet. So I, I think that's it. It's using what humans do well, what journalists do well, and getting into balance. I mean, one of the things that just fills me with fear, because I remember looking at this before and it was all about algorithms, echo chambers, et cetera. But, you know, this whole idea that um, because the majority of data already out there is written by men, we only we will make those inequalities worse because we're taking a patriarchal gaze basically and, and exacerbating that. So again, I think it's something you have to rally against as well and find our voice in because mm. um, it's you know what exists just isn't balanced enough. And uh, you know I'm talking very simply about men and women. If you get into other minority groups, then mm. you're going to have much much bigger issues. So lots to unpick around yeah. there. And you know you can always you're always fearful of the next bit of technology and the next change and you know we we wiggle through it but it it definitely is a fascinating time isn't it yeah yeah and look you know I guess the natural instinct is to be scared of all mm. tech and change but I guess how do we use that to our advantage yeah a couple of of questions a bit more pokey ones if you were to have founded any other magazine or indeed in the nature of the whole podcast founded a brand. If you don't want to name check another magazine, what would it have been and why? I'll go way back to magazines, 60s and Nova, uh, which was such a an incredible pioneer. I was looking at some covers just last week because they were so ahead of their time and I think largely inspired what we did at Stylist. So I love those pioneer brands. I find those absolutely um, inspiring because again, it's about being brave. It's what mm. you can do differently, how you can stick your neck out. Um, I, th I think there's some really interesting contemporary uh, brands doing that at the moment. Navara Media, I think is really interesting in, in terms how they've 
set up their business, but they're trying to challenge a status quo, uh, extremely left wing. So obviously only for probably a very specific audience, but using social media in a different way. Um, but yeah, probably if I could have put my name to it, Nova would have been, been amazing. Imagine what it must have been like working at, at that time. Well, I found out all the editors were men and it blew oh. my mind. This was, I was looking into it thinking, think about who actually, what, what brilliant grand arms there might be around to interview and speak to who were from that time. And all the founding editors were men. Does that disappoint you? It made me sad, yeah. yeah. I was a bit, because actually the bravery of the covers and speaking to women, I guess it, you know, maybe it had to be like that because it was the only way that magazine would get published. You obviously had to spare rib around at the same time and um, other feminist titles. But Nova was like the more mainstream mm. version of that. There must have been women in the building informing it. Yes, there were. And actually a lot of those women went on to have great careers as journalists. And who knows what happened? I don't know. This is what I want to know. What happened in the offices? This is what I wanted to dig into. Like how influential were they? Were the men figureheads or yeah. were they really involved in the content? I don't know. Um, and then another question is, what do you want to achieve this year, broadly this year, or in, in the near future, either personally or professionally? Oh, that's a good question. I, I think for stylists to keep growing and find new audiences, if I think about it, professional goals, you know, I think we've done an amazing job at, you know, whether that's through events or through digital verticals and diversifying. So I, th I think for me, I love inv invention of new things. Like that is my real buzz. So I'm always thinking about how we can grow, what we can develop, how we can speak to our audience differently. So for me, it would be to sort of add something else to our family. Um, going back to what we said earlier, this finding some peace and balance with just being and going, actually my, my career is great. I'm now off duty and I'm with my kids and my family. You know, I, I still like, my eldest child is 12. And I still uh, struggle with the boundaries and how it all works. I've got three kids. Um, so again, it's a peace and balance somehow trying to find that around work. Yeah, you must, I'm, I'm projecting, but my eldest is 10 and I just suddenly have that real clarity that it's going fast now. So fast. And yeah, and being present. Being, yeah, exactly. Just starts the secondary. And, you know, I, well, I feel the real blessing of this is a weird thing, but of pandemic and lockdown, I won't say COVID because that's not a blessing, but of that lockdown period was this ability to be at home and be more present and really has challenged me, I think, in terms of going, right, what does that mean for me? What does my life look and feel like? Because I feel so bloody lucky that I got to have that time to do some pickups and to be present. And yet I'm not, often I'm not, I'm sort of half mm. on my computer and half doing something else. So, um, yeah, I think this might have been on my to-do list for like the last few years, but it's still there. I always hope that if it's even on the to-do list, it's it's kind of percolating. It's it. yeah, yeah, it's percolating. I think that's a good good call actually, because I think if you're thinking about it, it probably is happening mm. to a degree. It's just, we're very hard on ourselves, aren't we? So I think, um, yeah, just being freeing myself up to just enjoy it mm. would be great. Yeah. But I also think you um, tapped on something really important, which I don't think is spoken about. If you're seeing women with these high-flying careers, often they aren't at pickup. Like mm -hmm. I think if you see 
on social media oh she's doing it all no no there's a very clear thing there's a very clear thing you're not doing and I'm often not a pickup and it doesn't sit very easy with me yeah but that's the reality it's a compromise I mean this is it you know I wrote a piece a few years ago which is was about not having it all because you know there's that famous quote you can have it all but not all at once and I was really worried I was perpetuating that myth Hey, I've got three kids. I've got a great job. I'm doing really well here. And look, look at me and having a nice time. And actually, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. It's compromises all the time. Mm. You know, I'm having to ditch an important meeting to be at an assembly or vice versa. You know, these, these are decisions being made mm. all the time. And I really struggled with it around the launch of Stylist. I, I had um, a launch Stylist and I had my first child within a year. Ooh. Yeah, not not planned, game plan wise. And I was really worried. I thought I might have blown this opportunity at work and I came back like a whirlwind because I wanted to prove myself. And it, you know, it doesn't set a great precedent mm. um, for other pe- people, I think. Because I, I think everyone just sees what they want to see. They don't see the tough bits. They don't see you crying at home. They don't see the, the massive things you're missing out on. Um, so it feels really important to me to be honest about mm. actually is it is very tough. It's all about compromises. Men have been compromising for years, but we just said they had it all. You know, it's like, they, but the, you know, also men traditionally would not have been present at mm. home or in their children's lives. And I think I shared a quote the other day, which is like, we're being asked to work like we don't have kids and parents like we don't have jobs. I mean, it's just mad, isn't mm. it? So very keen to reset this conversation mm. actually yeah I think it was really important to kind of admit to that because you just don't want anyone to think that yeah you're, you're managing to do the meeting and the pickup you're not no no simply one is being yeah. compromised for the other and it does I don't think it makes you're less good parent mm. and I don't think it makes you less good at your job but it does mean is the reality you're not doing both at the same yeah. time you're focusing on one at yeah. that time and that is uncomfortable sometimes mm. I don't know why the, I find the pickup thing really triggering because I think that often, because I don't do it very often, and then I do go, and at first, the, you know, the teachers didn't know who I was, and that that, that feels, and it doesn't feel That's very fine. good no. because I no. want to be the mum that I wanted to be to them, but I'm not, I'm not visible, and it's stupid because I know that I'm parenting, I know that I'm raising them. But- no, but these are the dilemmas we're all struggling with, mm-hmm. I think, and you know, it's I, I went to after school club, and they were like, "Who are you?" I was oh. like, "Oh." You're killing me. You're killing me. <laughs> Hi, child. You're not allowed to come to me. They're like confused. Like, God, maybe I haven't done this before. You're right. Um, but no, I mean, it, it. it is a constant challenge. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, every single day of the week, I'll have a slightly different feeling or emotion about this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes I'm totally fine with it. Sometimes it, I find it really hard. I mean, I, I've said a few times, but when I, I didn't expect when I went back to work after my first mat leave to feel so guilty to my colleagues when I left to go home to pick up after nursery. So there's emotions that you haven't even considered mm. that come into it because they're so used to being available. And then obviously, likewise, I think as they're getting older and they're like, hang on, where are you going and what are you doing? And then you're like, yeah, you're right. You just, you deserve to have my attention too. And I want to spend that time with you, but equally I want to go and do this. So how do I navigate that? I, I think, I mean, my big thing is trying to, but my daughter who's six, 
he's really got into the like, oh, you love work more than me chat, which I'm really desperately trying to go, no, work's awful. Like I hate work. I just have to not set that perception, you know, kind of go, I want to be a good role model Mm. for work and opportunity. Well, it's also trying to make you feel good. (laughs) I mean, it's like, I don't, just don't hear my husband having this conversation, no. I'll be honest. No, but also you can count on your kids to go straight <laughs> to the gym. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, you said it. Thank and you. All my deepest fears <laughs> are being. But you know, maybe that, this is the irony of it. They will teach us how to find the boundaries, to find the way to talk about it, because it, yeah. you've, got, you've got to explain it to her fundamentally, haven't you? And then you're like, actually, what, what do I want to say here? What do I think mm. here? Yeah, I mean, they do force you to put words to the things that you're trying to block out sometimes yeah and if and if actually that's my parameter like there's loads of work things that I feel like I have to do and then it's always those ones where you're like actually really really am I doing it from purely my own gain which is okay sometimes but you know yeah there's balance isn't there it's back to balance balance and compromise I mean this is it and and that's it I don't pretend to know or have advice in this space so I think we're all anyone in it is just navigating it and doing the best bloody job they Mm. can um but I think that's the candor that needs to be shared is no one's nailing this. It's it's just a very challenging situation and we will probably all make compromises and it will keep changing. Mm. It will keep changing as they change as well. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I think in my early kid years, I was like trying to find the perfect answer. It changes with every with mm. every work situation and with it every child and their age. Yeah, totally. But it is amazing. I'm also <laughs> laughing because we are recording it exactly pick up. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad you noticed because I hadn't. <laughs> the guilt got We're you. Not there. Um, two questions to end. Where can people find you? I'm a relatively private person. I love being the ambassador of a brand. I love that. And I love speaking on behalf of stylists. I'm actually quite comfortable talking to you now. It's not that I have a problem with that, but I find that hasn't troubled me to having a social platform. However, I am there at Lisa Smazarski on all the, platform, all the platforms. The benefit of a tricky name is that uh, I can own Lisa Smazarski everywhere. That's true. You've got the good handle. <laughs> yeah. And then I always ask at the end of all podcasts, if you could have an honest conversation with one person, who would it be? Oh my What would you God, say? Yeah. Um, it's got to be with this current government. I mean, I'm at, I'm at my wit's end. I've got to be honest. I'm like... I, I, do you know what? My, this, this could start a really long round and I, I won't get into it, but... Uh, I am so demoralized by how politics runs in this country. We are so regressive. We are dealing in a culture of sleaze. I'd like to go back and have a word with David Cameron, actually, and ask him why he bloody ran that referendum Mm. uh, and passed the buck and caused this beginning of a total cascade Mm. of shit. But but actually, I'm just I just am so disheartened that I'm bringing kids up in a world with so much dishonesty mm. and bad behaviour. Full stop. I think that is a conversation I'd like to have, really quite candidly. Mm. I feel the same. Again, I'm very conscious of time, but do you ever weave politics into stylist or is it? A- yeah, we do definitely tackle politics. I mean, actually, up on our. Um, social media today obviously we'll we'll take up on instagram today there's a story about the met police actually and how women are don't report actually cases of i guess misogyny or abuse that they've experienced so we'll cap deal with politics in that sense we do speak to the leaders and to politicians on a regular basis we've got good relationships with a few um mps who we work with as well 
Um, so it's part of the conversation. Mm. When, when we launched Stylist, we wanted it to be the equivalent of conversation with your friend where you would talk about your job, you'd talk about politics, you might talk about the food or the wine that you're drinking, you might talk about what you're wearing to a wedding, then you might mm. come back and talk about career again mm. and the promotion that you're going for. It's that fully rounded experience. So yeah, I think politics, particularly in this day and age, have to be quite a loud part of that mix. Yeah, I agree. And actually that's exactly why the magazine is so great because this is it, all of this it, stuff can sit together, can't it? Yeah, I think so. I think so. We do try and give a balance, but I've not been very balanced, I realise. But... <laughs> uh, you're, you're an individual person. I'm an individual person and I don't work for the BBC. Um, but it's the... You know, I, I think we, we will always try and give a balanced and kind of uh, nuanced perspective when we tackle these things. Because, I, you know, I spend a lot of time following people on Twitter I don't agree with so I can really understand the whole conversation. Mm. So I think, again, that's really important. How do we have a rounded understanding? Because I'm very, like, very focused on the fact that we live in a bracket a black and white world, but most of it is gray. Mm -hmm. And with, there's no room for the gray conversation and how do we open that up and have nuance and, you know, get into the fact that you might have your opinion changed if you can understand different perspectives. Mm -hmm. I think that that's it. The danger of the polarization means that we're not having those conversations. So again, that's what we'll try and do with stylists. Well, thank you so much. We really have rattled through quite a few things. We've rattled through quite a few things. Probably digressed quite significantly. No, that's all right. I like a bit of digression. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's lovely to chat to you. Thank you. And that's another episode wrapped. Thank you so much for listening to Meet the Founder, part of But Why podcast. It's so easy to forget the humans behind the products that fill our shelves and phones. But I love being reminded that every brand began with a person having a great idea. These chats are about more than me being nosy, although that is a big part of it. It's about remembering the reality that success isn't linear and that being a founder doesn't take one shape. Thank you so much to my guests and thank you for listening. And just one more ask, if you could please leave us a review or shout about it on social media, it makes a huge difference to the number of listens we get. And last but not least, if you do want to get in touch, and I always love hearing from you, you can email me on buttwhy at clemmytelford.com or find us at buttwhypodcast on Instagram. Wishing you a very excellent day and catch you next time. <laughs>